0: Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm Ed Reed. Welcome to our podcast. Um, as as you can tell, uh, I'm not Alistair Thomas. He's uh, I don't know where he is. I, I I like to think that he's on some sort of sun kissed uh, beach holiday, uh, fanning himself with the uh, with copies of the latest supplement, uh, and 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 uh, maybe having a margarita. But I suspect he's probably slaving away over over a hot keyboard somewhere. I'm joined today by uh, reporter uh, Ryan Duff and, and, and digital journalist Hamish Penman. How are you, chaps?
1: Very good, thank you. Very good. I'm sure Alistair will love that you you believe that he's sitting on a beach chilling out right now. That's great.
0: Don't don't break my illusions at this point, Ryan. Okay, I'm just uh... yeah. The
1: Aberdeen office is purely like it's it's all uh, it's all sort of done remote. We're actually all on a beach in Spain somewhere. That's, uh... You guys just living your best life. Fantastic, fantastic.
0: Well, I've, so I've I've been away for a couple of weeks, so I feel uh, I feel. So Somewhat refreshed, so I'm 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 trying to bring that smugness to uh, to 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 my inquiries about my, my colleague's health. So um, as you can tell, we're in a slightly sort of a different uh, different situation today. But one of the things that that sort of remained the same has been uh, that has been in fact a kind of a continuing issue that we've talked about a number of times is is, is safety in Nigeria we've seen uh, challenges over the years uh, there was the uh, there was the FPSO fire there've been uh, pumping station explosions and recently this week um a, a swamp drilling barge uh, the majestic uh fell over for 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 reasons that aren't yet clear um in in Nigeria it was it was under contract to uh, sepla energy um and it seems to have been uh, on uh, moving from from one well to another in part of its uh, the drilling campaign um according to the the company uh, i think there were 96 people on board um one of those people has been confirmed to be dead uh three people are still missing um, and there's obviously there's still a lot of uncertainty around quite how it's looking obviously the, these are sort of, sort of a developing story so still kind of getting updates from uh, from the company and 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 obviously as the investigation into that continues i'm sure there will be there'll be things to learn about but it's it's it does strike me there are kind of a couple of things that are probably worth bearing in mind um i think i think i suppose you know primarily it's that kind of that question about on a rig move, uh, you know, with did it did it need to have ninety six people on it? I mean, I think this is one of those things that has been kind of raised in the past about rig moves. We've seen in a number of uh, places around the world, and it, I, I feel like this is this is maybe one of those questions that that Seplat's going to have to answer. Um, and it, but I, I think there's also kind of a, a, a question there about the the regulatory environment, which I think is probably the kind of the, the, the bigger question, right? Given the number of ways in which we've seen uh, these kind of safety incidents play out in Nigeria, uh, and and I suppose the sort of the the grim regularity with which these things happen, it does feel that 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 the regulator needs to to take more action. I don't know. I suppose it feels like uh, I don't know. I, I I'm I'm, I'm I suppose I'm I feel having seen the these these accidents have in the past. Uh, my my concern would be that that no action actually will happen. I mean, I think um, the the idea that these companies um, I don't know they, they, it feels like there's a, there's, a, there's a lack of regulation, and a lack of insight. We've seen some reports uh, from NIMASA, the sort of the maritime administration uh, agency. Uh, reported in the nigerian press s- making some claims that um this uh, majestic this this swamp drilling rig which you know it's, a, it's it's a big piece of kit it's it's got you know 96 people on it it's 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 fairly substantial it's been working in nigeria i think for about 10 years these reports from nemasa claim that uh the the rig was been operating illegally in nigeria since 2016 which is some considerable time to have passed without uh, without those kind of questions being raised, and obviously, you know, maybe maybe we'll see more uh, more, more light shed on that um, in, in in the sort of the, the weeks as, as as we see what the what the investigation shows. But the idea that either you know Nimasa is correct and and you know that this rig has been operating illegally. Obviously, raises a lot of questions for Seplat for for, for depth wise the, uh, the the Nigerian drilling company. But on the other hand, if it has not been operating in then that suggests that NIMASA, as as the sort of the maritime regulator, has clearly got to the wrong end of the stick, which kind of suggests a sort of a slightly worrying lack of capacity at NIMASA. So, I think there there are obviously a number of kind of questions there around uh, quite what's going on. Uh, obviously, we're not sure. We're still got a lot to find out, but. It, it it feels like something that's 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 happened again uh, with uh, frankly grim regularity. You you
2: speak about the regulatory system or, or lack thereof it. Where, where does that power reside? Is it with the state? Is it with a Quango and and also I mean, the point on union rights there as well. I mean, where do they stand by, by the frequency with which these incidents seem to be occurring would suggest that they're perhaps next to non-existent
0: yeah so i mean i think that there, there is there is clear sort of regulatory uncertainty <laughs> uh which is an unfortunate tenor phrase but um in in nigeria so so the uh the, the pia kind of came in um which was kind of the the kind of the, the which was really rewrote the rules of the game for uh, for the nigerian oil industry and tried to kind of bring in some new new Clarity around quite how things are regulated, um, and, and there was an, an upstream regulator created and a sort of a downstream regulator created. And frankly, this seems to have only led to more confusion. Uh, earlier this this summer, we saw a point when the downstream regulator accused Exxon of theft, uh, alleging that it had, had improperly uh, lifted a cargo of, of, of liquids from a terminal. Uh, and, and and Exxon took the view that it was authorised to do so by the upstream regulator. I mean, so the the, the president has now you know sort of sort of stepped into that debate and, and sort of you know brought some more clarity. But it feels like a very sort of top down sort of executive like ruling by executive mandate rather than establishing clear rules of the game and i think that's clearly what's 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 lacking is that there tends to be this sort of knee-jerk response when something goes wrong and then people come out of the woodwork and say this was they're doing this wrong they were doing this wrong this was you know perhaps illegal whatever whereas actually it feels like i don't know like those those rules should be kind of clear from from the the, the get-go uh, and then maybe that would shed some light and on what's going on and, and and hopefully avoid these problems I mean, it's got to be said. Um, you know, Seplat um, has 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 had some issues in the past with safety. There was an explosion a couple of years ago uh, at a pumping station. I think seven people died. So I think there is that kind of question around. I mean, that that Seplat's going to have to answer. And I think you know, clearly these are these are kind of some big questions. Seplat, it's London listed. It 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 does provide a certain degree of insight into its operations. It's facing a lot of local challenges but it's um it's going to have to try and work it through and it's just maybe just to come back to to the politics again um we do uh, this week we've we've seen a new uh oil minister appointed maybe that will provide some some more clarity but it, i suppose you know Instinctively, uh, I, I I can't help but fear for the worst.
1: Yeah, your chat about the uh, the regulatory uh, regulatory body there sounds an awful lot like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, right? It seems like there's there's a lot of miscommunication and not a clear guideline on on governance. But then I suppose the I think one of the mo- one of the most sort of shocking things about this story is arguably that it wasn't shocking you know you were saying that we've seen incidents happen happen with distressing regularity in in nigeria is that is that how you felt when you saw the news come across your desk was it like you know it's obviously shocking news but i'm not shocked that it happened is that
0: yeah i think i think that's the thing isn't it i mean i think you know seeing these 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 things happening again and again i think i think there is um an unappealing sort of sense of regularity about it and and it it doesn't, I mean, it, it's, it's always that thing, isn't it? When you look at these 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 accidents, um, you know, one, one hopes that there are lessons learned and that these things don't happen again. I can't help but feel that, you know, it's just a matter of time until it happens again. And I, I, I don't really see a way in which um, the president, the regulator can get to a point where they can kind of get ahead of that curve proactively. I think there are steps that they can take, but I think it's going to be an uphill battle. And I think that there's there, there are so many regulatory challenges ahead that it's going to be a, a, a real issue and unfortunately i think uh, there's there's a good chance that in the near future i'll be writing again about uh, more nigerian accidents but listen that's that's probably a, a depressing note to to, to to end that segment on but uh, i think it, it's, it's probably an important one to bear in mind and and obviously our, our, our thoughts go out to uh, all those people affected by that tragedy we're going to take a short break uh, and then we'll be back with uh, some thoughts from hamish The cost of polluting is increasingly high for companies covered by emissions trading schemes. New sectors, new regulations and tougher rules will transform the industry in the UK and Europe in the upcoming decades. Navigate the emissions trading market with the support of our experienced team. Vertis Environmental Finance, emissions trading in safe hands. Hamish, tell me about Jackdaw, uh, it looks like it's not been stopped despite the protests.
2: Yeah, or, or like they're off maybe, um, certainly recently anyway. Um, but yeah, drilling is certainly afoot um, at Jackdaw, it is the season, or the, uh, the agreed rig window at least. Um, Notice to Mariners posted on the Kingfisher Bulletin. Um, Shows that the time frame for the Valaris 122 drilling rig to be on location at Jackdaw started this week on uh, Tuesday. Um, Looking at marine traffic, it's kind of difficult to be exactly sure whereabouts it is um, with certainty, but it's certainly in that ballpark um, near the field, kind of around 100 miles east of Aberdeen. Um, And it could be there for the next 500 days or so if the uh, bulletin's to be believes the end date for the for drilling operations to wrap up is January 2025 it could finish before then indeed it probably is likely to do so um, especially if the the mid 2025 startup that shell is targeting is going to be hit um, so while out on station the Valaris 122 is going to drill four welds through a newly installed um door platform the field itself will be made up of a wellhead platform, subsea infrastructure tied back to the shear water production hub. So that's going to add a number of years onto the life of that specific asset as well. At peak production, Jack Dorr estimated yield 40,000 barrels of oil equivalents could account for give or take 6% of projected UK North Sea gas production. And Shell's on record it's saying it's going to spend £500 million in the UK to, to deliver it. So a, a large whack of cash coming with it as well. Despite the uh, cash pledge for the UK, Akka Solutions, uh, Norway's Acker Solutions, has won the contract for the engineering, procurement, construction and installation of the platform and is completing that work in Norway. Um, it expects to deliver the first part of the work, so the steel substructure um, complete with pre-drilling platform this year. Top side to follow next year so the wheels are in motion um, it's kind of crunch time for the project obviously as is the case and as you alluded to um, with everything and anything these days there is opposition to the project um there is a dedicated stop jack door group a splinter of the the stop cambo and the stop Rosebank initiatives but they have been pretty quiet of late um no doubt because Rosebank in particular has been dominating the headlines, um, and these groups seem to broadly share the same members. And their attentions are focused ed- elsewhere. They haven't got that many resources, so Rosebank's certainly been the one that's been been hitting the headlines and, and capturing the capturing the imagination in recent months. So, whether news of drilling sparks uh, protests back into action, we'll see. Obviously, there's a precedent for protests out at sea. We had the penguins. Pirates uh, earlier this year, Greenpeace boarding the FPSO on its way around Africa and Greenpeace trying to block a drilling rig that was on its way to BP's Vorlich Fields, I think it was a Transocean one, um, back in Cromarty Firth in 2019. I would say that probably out of these three stop various things groups, uh, Jackdaw is probably the lesser of the three evils um, in the eyes of environmentalists. It's gas for a start, it's nowhere near as big as the other two it does have Shell behind it, so that probably gives it a, a degree of animosity that maybe it wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and But there is also legal opposition to Jackdaw, so the lawyers, of course, win again. Um, one day after Shell took the investment plunge, uh, Greenpeace launched a legal challenge against the UK government. The action is currently on hold, um, pending the decision of a separate case um, that's got kind of similarities. I believe that's about onshore drilling down in... Uh, sorry, I think, I need to double check that. But yeah, so that's currently, things are paused. Um, but Greenpeace's kind of case is that operates rubber-stamped Jackdaw without accounting for emissions of the burning of the gas that will be produced. Shell has did say earlier this year that it's not particularly phased by it. that it says it's a relatively low risk of disruption to the project arising from it. Um, but, but I do kind of wonder if the, the lack of focus on Jackdaw recently from environmental groups means that it isn't all that important. It was announced and FID at a time just over a year ago where there weren't many other big projects kind of going on. Rosebank and Cambo were both kind of looked to have stalled, were pretty quiet. And there is a chance that with those two fields as well as more licenses, whether the kind of the gaze has shifted, um, watch an absolute armada of Greenpeace ships now belting out to the north sea to completely undermine that point but, but there we go as it stands that's my take
0: so just just looking at that uh, that that legal action is it is it sort of this like, like a like a scope 3 beef is that uh, is that what they what they're, what they're concerned about
2: yeah so i mean the the nsta and opreds and and the regulators they take into account or certainly do now uh, the direct operational emissions from the projects um as part of their their process for approving it Um, And that's something that's going to be the case going forward with new licenses as well. The the beef uh, is over the emissions that will be produced from the gas that is burnt from Jackdaw. Now, they claim that that hasn't been taken into account um, and that's where the, the true damage of the project will be. I mean, it's the kind of the same argument we see time and time again with Rosebank, where the campaigners argue that it will produce the same emissions as a handful of African countries. I can't remember the names of the ones that they specifically use, but they claim, that, but because Ecuador's big push on the Rosebank is, look, we're going to electrify NAR, its operational emissions are going to be amongst the lowest in the world. Um, that's therefore approve it. The flip side of that is, well, environmentalists saying, yes, well, it might be, but the, uh, the emissions that will be produced from burning the oil um, are going to put a pretty significant dent in any carbon budgets. Obviously, that doesn't really take into account the fact that a large proportion of the oil from Rosebank will probably go into to plastics and fertilizers and medicines and things like that. But that's a entire other debate that we won't get into here.
0: And I suppose just just like looking at that sort of the the, the Velaris, it's a it's a jackup, right? I mean, I I I, I read this week. Uh, I think it was from bore drilling talking about how. Um, jack-up rates were lower in the North Sea than in other parts of the world and they were sort of talking about how uh, essentially they were sort of looking at, at sending their rigs sort of elsewhere I, I was just wondering if you, I mean obviously Valaris is, the the Velaris is 122 is a, is a, is a jack-up um, what's uh, what, how, do, how do you see uh, the, the sort of the local market for, for, for drilling? For
2: jack-ups specifically? Interesting because there's been a lot of talk about drilling rigs um, in the UK, and and their kind of capacity, and, and the fact that there's an exodus of them, um, a lot of people saying that the windfall tax, um, general political sentiments, um, are just kind of putting this dampener on the industry, meaning that projects are being pushed back, um, and that perhaps creating increasingly tight margins, so that the dr- the day rate for, for drilling rigs here isn't where it is, in well, certainly the Gulf of Mexico, Brazil. Obviously, it's a bit different for Jack Ops because they're not going to be able to operate offshore Brazil. But, well, the Middle East, for example, there, there's a, a huge kind of procession of them heading towards the Middle East. Um, and I think even Norway, even Norway with its brilliant rhetoric and it, and it's going for gold, is, is struggling to kind of keep hold of them. And the, I suppose that in addition to that as well, there don't seem to be any new ones coming to the market. There's It takes a, a good few years to get these fabricated and, and and put to sea and there just doesn't seem to be the appetites at the moment um especially because contractors are probably enjoying after a, a pretty depressed few years some pretty good day rates i think jack-ups are up around 300 350 or something for for semi-subs that's closer to 500 so given that where the the rate was in 2020 where they were probably struggling to give these these things away it is now boom time again and Nobody knows how long it will last, so so it's understandable that contractors will try and make the most of it while it is there. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, the, the number of, just going back to the jack-up point originally, the number of rigs that was kind of parked up in the Cromarty Firth is way down. The number that were in Dundee, you can see them as you go through there on the train, is way down as
1: well, and, and a lot of them are being put to work. You know, it's it's interesting that you, you mentioned there. You know, obviously there's the legal action uh, with the Jackdaw not getting attention. We uh, recently we could call it some rare Jackdaw beef, but um, you know, the, the last week last year I I remember writing a piece and I was trying to find it there and I couldn't find it. But it was it was a legal a legal expert said that it's quite it's notoriously difficult for this uh, this legal action from protesters to actually go ahead and go anywhere. You know that. The deck is kind of stacked against them in a way when it comes to that sort of legal process for opposing these these kind of projects. So I don't think it's really a, a shock, is it, that you know Shell's sort of buying off or going, "Oh well, it's not it's not going to be a problem" because. How often do how often do we see these operators go to court, and how often do we actually see the protesters win? You know.
0: Well, yeah, I, I think I think that's a, that's, a, that's a really good point, right? And I think as, as we've seen we've seen a number of uh, points where, uh, as you say, legal action gets kind of started and, and 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 then falls to the wayside, don't we? I think I mean I you know remember reporting uh, just a couple of months ago about the uh, that legal direction that was sort of trying to target Shell's board of directors kind of direct um and that that also went nowhere um and I, it does seem like the cost of doing business doesn't it that these 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 big companies with these big projects just have to sort of face these sorts of um ongoing kind of uh litigations and given the uh the, it, it does seem that, that broadly there's a there's a there's a poor uh poor rate of success i suppose with the, the the sort of the exception being the uh that that ruling in the netherlands uh was it last year or the year before where uh, it was kind of quite a high level ruling talking about shell and the, the need to reduce emissions. but I think maybe we'll we'll, we'll, we'll leave that uh, section for now. I'm sure we will come back to to Jackdaw uh, as it, uh, as it progresses. Um, but for now we're going to take a short break and then we'll come back with some AI chat from Ryan.
2: In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt, and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges, to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now, visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape.
0: So Ryan, uh, bring us up to speed with uh, with uh, is it Ian Conn and his thoughts about AI?
1: Yeah, so um, AI has been sort of dominating the headlines, not just in the energy sector, but across everything. You know, notoriously in, the, in Hollywood at the moment as well, but. I caught up with uh, Ian Conn, who's the ex-CEO of Centrica. He, he served uh, from 2015 to 2020. He also, uh, he was also a group managing director of BP and served on the board for about a decade as well. But now he is the chair of a UK-based AI tech company named Empress. It was founded by uh, two of the guys that he used to work alongside at Centrica and he sort of jumped at the opportunity to work with them again. He said that he enjoyed working with them there and he kind of just wanted to to continue that working relationship. He championed uh, self-learning, sort of technology, self-learning machines, saying that it can optimise things in, in a way that you couldn't previously, you know, you could improve process safety when it comes to offshore operations. And uh, installations can operate more effectively, namely offshore wind. So, you know, like he was definitely speaking very passionately about this topic, and you know, it is a, like I say, it's a hot topic within everything at the moment. Uh, he described himself as an experienced amateur when it comes to AI. You know, he's worked previously in IT at BP, and uh, he had his. He had his hand in uh, the computer side at Centrica as well. So, you know, he, he definitely knows, he knows what he's talking about, but maybe he's, uh, he's looking to learn a little bit more about AI through this, this new role. But, you know, obviously as chair, that's not exactly uh, all he's doing. He's not going to be sort of dealing with day to day operations. He's looking to establish uh, an effective board for the firm and sort of support the team and the company as a whole. But, you know, I mentioned offshore wind there and I feel like any conversation we have in the energy sector at the moment always ends up coming around to the energy transition in net zero and this was uh, no exception we spoke to we spoke to him a little bit about uh, just sort of his experience with the journey to net zero and he was sort of giving some opinions i think are becoming more and more prominent uh, lately you know and um, he was saying that we're not moving quickly enough which is something that uh, EIC said earlier this year. You know, their chief executive Stuart Broadley told Energy Voice out loud that you know, we're the UK alone is not going to hit its net zero targets, and we often champion ourselves at being at the fore, as being at the forefront of you know offshore wind and the like. So, you know, it's it's not not really much of a wonder that you know maybe globally we're we're lagging behind in these uh, Paris Agreement goals. You know, you know, he was saying that. Globally, we're spending about a trillion on this uh, on this goal, and really, it should be something like three trillion, you know, to to sort of get us over the line in time. Um, but you know, I, I tried to link back to some of the stuff he was speak- uh, he'd been involved with in his uh, in his past, and you know, Spirit Energy sprung to mind, famously going through a little bit of a tough economic time at the moment. Uh, but now they're sort of looking to focus on energy transition efforts and. He he described. Uh, he said that he was very proud of of the farm and the work he'd done there and what they're doing now. But you know, Ian didn't just jump onto the the, the sustainability and uh, energy transition chat just to sort of be trendy. He is actually a senior advisor focusing on energy and sustainability investing at the U.S. asset manager Blackstone. So you know, he, he definitely knows what he's talking about when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know. He, he, Like I say, he says that net zero needs to be sort of happening more quickly, which again is just something that's a sentiment that seems to be coming up time and time again. But you know, we spoke last week on uh, grid capacity, and there's there's so many uh, hurdles in our way that we seem to we should have been speaking about ten years ago. You know, (laughs) we're we're only just addressing these topics now. I mean, a lot
2: of the talk of AI has been on the negatives as well as the positives. In fact, most of it's been on the negatives and how. We as journalists are all going to lose our jobs. Amber, you as a production producing our podcast, you're all going to lose your job. We're all going to lose our jobs. Ryan, did he address um, the drawbacks of AI and a lot of the concerns that people have about
1: it? Yeah, of course. So you know, artificial intelligence it's sort of you know the the, the name kind of explains what the the technology itself does. But uh, Ian was explaining how uh, you know if you, if you're an offshore wind operator. Self-learning technology can sort of help adjust for weather conditions, you know, so you can optimize how much you're uh, getting out of your infrastructure, you know, let's say it's in the North Sea, let's say you're yeah off, uh, offshore wind operator, you can ensure that you're getting the most out of your infrastructure that you can, and I think that's exceptionally important right now when we're hearing across the board that, you know, profitability is quite a, a difficult, difficult sort of thing to tap into when it comes to offshore wind and renewables. So, yeah, um, essentially, it's sort of just getting the... Like AI can sort of help you get the most out of what you've got at the moment was kind of the messaging that I, I got from Ian.
0: I mean, just looking at that sort of AI question, uh, people, a lot of people, as you say, have talked about AI. Um and uh, to the point that it feels like it might have lost its meaning a little bit. Do you think you could maybe just shed a little bit of light about what uh, Empiricist does in terms of this AI and how it works in terms of uh, helping these so that sort of offshore wind sector?
1: You know, I think um, obviously uh, him sort of working on the board of a, an AI firm, I don't think he's definitely he's going to directly address, oh yeah, it's, it's going to have engineers or something lose their jobs. I don't think that's uh, something that they- They'd advertise, but it seems to be the messaging that's coming from Empress, At least is this can enhance, this can support roles. You know, support people that are already working within the sector, rather than maybe uh, outright replacing people. Now, obviously, uh, you know, we're we're in sort of early days of implementing artificial intelligence and machine learning within the energy sector, so maybe down the line we'll get into the same kind of sector that uh, that we're seeing in Hollywood right now is our strikes. We don't want, you know, uh, AI to take over our jobs. But right now it doesn't seem that that's the, the signpost thing that's coming from it, but Again, you know the, the the sky's the limit, right? It's a, it's we might end up with a Skynet on our hands, you know. We might we might need to sort of uh, yeah, we need to sort of keep an eye on that. But no, it, it seems very promising at the moment. Uh, it seems like this is an exciting, exciting new technology that's sort of it, we're we're going to be able to use to to the benefit. We also spoke about process safety. You know, um, Ian spoke about how. Artificial learning can also improve uh, off- the safety of offshore workers, you know, sort of analyzing how how production goes and make sure that the guys that are out there aren't... Uh, are at, le- at less risk of getting hurt.
0: And it just, I mean, I suppose just picking up on that kind of political question, right, about about the sort of, I suppose, that sort of broader drive to uh, sort of net zero and sustainability, and I think you, you mentioned the, the sort of the EIC kind of concerns. But it feels like looking at the sort of the, the political kind of debate in the last kind of, you know, month or so, is that people, uh, you know, the conservatives and the Labour Party seem to be both kind of really rowing back uh, sort of plans for uh, kind of greener energy right i mean i think you know the looking at for instance a lot of the debate about uh, de- debate around uh, the ulez in in london which obviously is it feels like a like a, like a sort of a, like a bit of a sort of a manifestation of that sort of drive towards kind of greener energy and away from uh, from from conventional energy do, do, i mean he did he did he shed any light on on uh, the the, kind of the political side of uh, that that move
1: yeah, definitely. So we spoke, we spoke quite, uh, quite extensively on that actually during our short conversation. Uh, you know, he spoke about, I think we spoke about it a couple of weeks and uh, a couple of weeks ago in the podcast actually about how energy transition was at the forefront and then it became energy security with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Ian identified that, yeah, geopolitics is a massive contributing factor into, uh, you know, the, the, how far behind we are in, in, uh, global energy transition yeah you look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then all of a sudden we stop talking about building turbines and we start thinking about how do we stop importing oil and producing our own uh, so yeah I think naturally of course uh, our politics uh, both domestically and internationally are playing a massive impact on uh, on our global energy transition.
0: And I suppose just to kind of close on that, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think certainly we, we've, we have seen sort of, you know, re-manifestation of, of, of sort of energy security as an issue, haven't we? But I think, I suppose to me, there also seems to be the point where uh, energy seems to be more and more sort of a politicized uh, sort of a football where um, where there is, you know, it feels like there's, 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 there's traction in uh, kind of either supporting or complaining about green energy, which feels like, maybe not the not the not the most positive of moves.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think that's an interesting point to be made. You know, I think uh, you know, we've heard sort of before that when uh, the the problem with having sort of four-year terms is the fact that a government is only incentivized to care about the energy transition for the next four years. They don't want to pass the baton on and then, you know, the next government on sort of can say, oh, we achieved net zero and they get all the credit, right? I think that's something that's maybe a cynical way of looking at it, but I think it's an important thing to to mention, the fact that, yeah, and, you know, we're seeing more and more that industry saying, listen, we're miles off in net zero, we're not on target, we're off the rails, and we're not seeing policymakers say, yeah, do you know what? You're right. The experts are saying this and our numbers are saying this. We should really double down and ensure that we're cutting our emissions, you know?
0: Well, what a, uh, what a slightly uh, downbeat note to end on. But I'm sure that there are better times ahead uh, if only for uh, Jackdaw and, uh, and, and, and and the drilling plans and then you'll see that, that Hamish has discussed. Uh, but so listen, that's, that's all the time we have uh, for today. Uh, thank you to Ryan and thank you to Hamish. Uh, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening.
2: Outloud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it,
1: leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.